Welcome to the EHA Mythbusting podcast series, and thank you to everyone for listening. I'm Gareth Tucker, the CEO of a leading medical communications group, and I'll be your host for this podcast. This is the fifth and final podcast in a comprehensive five-part series funded by the European Haematology Association, discussing haematology diseases, diagnosis, assessment, and treatment in older adults. The purpose of the podcast series is to share up-to-date information with patients and physicians about haematology in older adults. To access the other podcasts and associated resources, please visit the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. Today, we're discussing the ethical issues associated with treating haematological malignancies in older adults. Our experts for this discussion are Professor Raul Cordoba, Dr. Ulrich Wedding, and Professor Dominique Bron. Perhaps if I can come to you first, Professor Cordoba, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much. Um, my name is Raul Cordova. I am the, the chairman of the scientific working group on aging and hematology uh, since uh, 2019. And I am also a member of the Spanish group of geriatric hematology. So I am very much involved in uh, treating and addressing all issues of uh, older adults with um, uh, hematological malignancies. So it's for me a a great honor to coordinate this um, uh, program in the EHE campus, and I uh, hope to have a very successful uh, conversation with my other two colleagues and also friends. Thank you, Professor Cordoba. And Dr. Wedding? Yeah, my name is Ulrich Wedding. I'm a specialist for internal medicine, medical oncology, and hematology, and I'm head of the Department of Palliative Care at the Jena University Hospital in Germany. I'm involved in several working groups on geriatric oncology, geriatric hematology, and I'm happy to hear and to discuss this, Raoul and Dominique. Thank you. Um, Professor Braun. Yes, I am uh, Dominique Braun. I am Professor of Hematology at the Free University of Brussels in Belgium and just retired as um, head of department of hematology in uh, Cancer Institute in Brussels. I have a special interest in aging and ethics and bioethics in medicine. And I am a member of the scientific working group from the EHA on aging with role in uh, Ulrich and happy to be here for the discussion. Excellent. And thank you to all three of you for participating. So let's let's move straight into our first set of questions. And we have a couple of patient-centric questions to, to kick off with. And the first is around uh, how are decisions actually made regarding an individual patient's treatment pathways in, in older adults? And how much of a say does the patient have in their own treatment? Is this And is it affected by their age? Maybe Professor Kodobra, I could ask you to comment on that first. Yes, thank you very much for this question. Uh, when we are uh, seeing um, a, a patient in, in our clinic, uh, when uh, this patient is an, uh, an older adult, uh, we should uh, look not only to the age of the patient, but to uh, other conditions. So when we want to decide um, a, a treatment, the first thing I, I think that we have to, uh, to meet is to share the goal with uh, our patient. Uh, we have to make a shared decision process uh, because uh, at the end, um, uh, we are treating patients with diseases and not diseases. Uh, so to share 
the a, a common goal with the patient is um, uh, very important in this case. And also when we have this goal, we have to check for different uh, conditions uh, rather than uh, HVI itself. And uh, we should proceed to a, a comprehensive geriatric assessment. In many institutions, uh, we do not have geriatricians to do this comprehensive assessment. And there are many proposals uh, to do a, a screening of frailty in order to identify which patients are going to benefit from a further comprehensive assessment. And those that um, which are referred to the geriatrician, uh, this specialist is going to be part of, of the team because at the end we are going to be part of a, of a multidisciplinary team. And this specialist is going to uh, check not only for comorbidities as we are used to do in our clinics, but also uh, for a social uh, nutritional, emotional, um, and psychological status. And um, the geriatrician is going to uh, be able to classify patients into different subtypes of uh, frailty. And uh, it's going to help us in order to tailor therapy according to frailty, not only uh, to age. And as we start to maybe lean more towards the eth some of the ethical questions, how much of an impact does cost have on treatment decisions? And are older patients maybe more likely to miss out on treatment options than their, their younger counterparts? Maybe, maybe Dr. Reding, I could ask you to, to comment on that. There are, at it might be that the situation is different in different countries. Um, I'm, not, I'm not aware of um, all regulations in all European or worldwide countries. Um, at least in my country, there is no rule that uh, age is a factor for not offering a treatment to the patient, age itself. But the clinical benefit uh, might be different between younger and older patients, and the risk of the treatment might be different between younger or older patients. And to the risk of treatment is a factor you you which is important for your treatment uh, recommendation to the patient. The, the question, main question is, will the patient be able to benefit from the treatment or um, will you possibly harm the patient? Mm -hmm. And it's not a good treatment when you harm the patient, mm -hmm. um, but the costs are not the relevant uh, decision-making criteria within this process of decision-making. Thank you, Dr. Wedding. Professor Bron, is there anything you would add? We touched on the sort of shared goal approach, the importance of appropriate treatment. Um, obviously the question was, I suppose, also around the slightly ethical side of whether age might have an impact on, on treatment decisions. Is, is there anything that's uh, that you would add to what's been already said? Uh, I fully agree with my colleague. Maybe what I would say is that uh, it's true that the older patients, they are often undertreated and usually it's not for financial reason. But uh, there is a, a myth around aging and older patients. It's that uh, older patients, they are, they are frail. And they, you, usually what you heard is that uh, the family says that the patient is not able to tolerate the treatment and the, the fear of the patient is the, um, the loss of autonomy 
and the fear of the physician is the the toxic death, the risk to kill the patient. And then they both are happy by reducing the doses. And that's what we observed in the uh, in the real life is that the physician, they reduce the doses, whatever the comorbidities and what the role explained that we don't do that when you are a good oncogeriatrist, you, you do the geriatric assessment and you adapt to the vulnerabilities. But in the real life, patients are usually undertreated because of these two myths. I think we see, see both. There's undertreatment and in some patients there's overtreatment as well. Um, so it's, it's difficult to, to have the right balance between both. You want to avoid undertreatment. You want to be able to offer the patient the treatment he can benefit from. And uh, in uh, some patients, some relatives, in some physicians, um, there is a fear of um, that you toxify the cause of the disease without benefit. And on the other hand, there I see overtreatment as well. Um, for example, in, in long-lasting disease with several treatment lines, it's always difficult to to find the right moment uh, when you uh, don't offer a further treatment and stop treatment and the patients will more benefit from supportive care only. Professor Cordoba, what would be your thoughts around this, this sort of balance of over-treatment and under-treatment? Uh, yes, I, I want to add that uh, I think geriatric hematology is here to help in this um, decision process. If, um, if we identify um, a patient uh, which is classified as fit, uh, um, I think it's relevant not to under-treat a fit patient. But if we identify uh, and classify the patient as a, a vulnerable or frail, it's very important not to over-treat um, this patient. So um, we know uh, that we do not have to under or over-treat um, a certain patient, but geriatric hematology is here to help in order to, to tailor therapy. So I think we have to start implementing these strategies in our daily clinical practice just to, to tailor and to adapt the, uh, the treatment to all different phenotypes and features uh, of our patients. Mm, thank you. And I think we're sort of moving into the, I guess, the, the, the main area, the number of the area around why there are so many ethical issues around treating older adults. Maybe, Professor Broad, maybe you could comment on this to start with. Yes, thank you. It, it's um, a very good question, and we don't talk enough about the ethical problems in medicine. And before to start with the, the problem, I would like to remind you that there is four principles in uh, ethics in medicine. The, the first one is no maleficence. Then we should not harm the patient. And for all the patients we are discussing now, uh, it's to balance the benefit and the toxicity, for instance, and not to be too toxic with the patient. The second issue is beneficence. Then you have to do good with your patient. You have to take care of the disease, but you don't have to forget the patient. The, to forget the patient uh, around the disease. And then uh, you should be sure all the, um, the depression, the nutritional problem are covered. You, 
We have to avoid any discrimination by age. We have to be sure the patient understood what we said. And that's uh, the second point. And besides no maleficence and beneficence, the third point is the respect of the patient autonomy and self-determination of the patient. And uh, it's well known that for all the patients, the quality of life is much more important than the quantity of life. And it's very important uh, when we have discussed together with physician and geriatrician and um, psychologist, the, the best treatment for the patient is very important to discuss with him about his, uh, uh, his uh, personal vision in terms of uh, life, quality of life, and also end of life. That's for the third point. And the fourth point, it's um, very important today in this COVID period is the social justice. And this uh, social justice, uh, sometimes it's not easy to discuss, but when we have a limited budget or limited resources in some acute situation, it's very important to balance the cost and the benefit ratio uh, we can apply to the patient. And then it's very important to have some uh, real objective clinical frailty scale uh, score and uh, to know the life expectancy of the patient. Thank you, Professor Bron. I know you described these in module one of the myth-busting e-learning series accompanying this podcast. So uh, listeners can access these at the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. Dr. Redding, would you like to come in there? Yeah, I think it's important to ask ourselves as physicians, are there areas where we, um, knowing or unknowing, uh, apply ageism um, that we um, don't look at older patients as careful as we do for younger ones. And uh, I know a, a study performed in Norway where um, general practitioners, specialists in hospitals and students were asked for uh, the image of medical disciplines. <laughs> um, at the top of the line, they were cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, and at the bottom line, there was geriatric medicine. And that was independent um, whether the setting were GPs or specialists in hospital or medical students. So it was independent of the setting and independent of the amount of training they had. So we, in some areas of medicine are in more in favor than others. And caring for older people is not as interesting at, as other things in medicine to do. And another by example is um, how are we willing to offer medical trials for patients? And we are more um, enthusiastic to offer medic, um, clinical trials to younger patients than to older patients. General practitioners are more um, interested to, to send younger patients to the centers where they are cared for most the best way, and uh, they're more reluctant to refer older patients to centers. So there are a couple of examples uh, where we practice some discrimination uh, due to age in patients in medicine. Yes, multifaceted challenges. 
Um, Professor Bron, you, you alluded to this just now around the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, how, how has the pandemic exacerbated these kind of ethical issues? Oh, there were a lot of uh, ethical issues and um, we retrospectively have to analyze all the failure and uh, deficiencies in the system. But uh, the, the problem of social justice, as I discussed in the ethical problem, became prominent in this COVID period because we had a shortage of material, the mask, the clothes, the oxygen provider. We had a shortage of medication for the patient. Uh, when we decided to have a palliative care instead of ICU, there were not enough uh, pain relief medication or other medication. Uh, that was a problem. During this period, we realized there is a, a very bad uh, coordination between the nursing home and the hospital. There were no clear guidelines, no clear connection. and. Um, we, we are analyzing all this problem today. And the last ethical problem really acute during this period is the, the solitude of the older patient uh, for the end of life because they were uh, far from the family, far from the children uh, without any contact. And older patients, they are not so familiar with the tablets and it was really a, an ethical problem to to have all this, uh, all the patients dying far from the family. Mm. Many challenges. And maybe I can come to Professor Cordoba next. Professor Bronze outlined some of those issues and the poor coordination, the patient solitude. I mean, thinking more broadly, how has the COVID 19 pandemic impacted patients with physiological malignancies? Yeah. Um... In the, in the UHA, we have conducted a, a retrospective study about what we did in the pandemic. As Dr. Brom has said, uh, we made things that uh, were not in the best way, done in the best way, but we learned about uh, how to improve the, the healthcare of our patients. Uh, in this study uh, called EpiCovideha, um, almost 4,000 uh, patients were uh, recruited in this, in this study, and uh, almost two-thirds of patients had a severe uh, disease, and uh, almost one-third of patients died uh, because of uh, COVID-19. So at the end, many patients um, died because of this um, infection, um, not only uh, because of the hematological malignancy. And when we analyzed uh, what happened to uh, uh, these patients, age by itself was a, um, a poor prognostic factor um, uh, for outcome. And um, probably it could be related not because of the age by itself, but because of the lack of uh, functional reserve. We have to keep in mind that many patients uh, were in the need to uh, and uh, ICU admission, many patients were in the need of a high flux of uh, oxygen, in the need of uh, drugs to, uh, to keep um, uh, blood pressure. And um, in the lack of resources, we had to uh, look for the best candidates um, in order to obtain the best outcome. I think that in many cases, the age was the only factor that uh, was uh, taken into account in order to decide if the patient was admitted to an ICU or not. 
But if you check all the scores or calculators that are available in order to predict the outcome uh, when a patient with um, a COVID-19 infection uh, may have, uh, probably the age by itself is one of the more strong predictive factors. And uh, of course, in this pandemic, it, it has to be taken into account. So what would you say were the, I guess, the, the broader reasons then for some of these, the, the maybe so poor outcomes or the difficult outcomes in COVID-infected patients with hematological malignancies? What, what was behind it then maybe beyond just age? Um, when we check for uh, the different risk factors, um, uh, one of them is the, the diagnosis by itself, not only the age. And uh, we have seen in this study that patients with uh, acute myeloid leukemias and uh, myelodysplastic syndromes uh, were at higher risk of death uh, just because of having the, uh, this diagnosis at the time of uh, suffering from COVID-19 infection. And also to be uh, inactive treatment, uh, it could be related to an impairment in the uh, in the immunity or in the way of um, fight against the infection, these patients uh, on active treatment to the, uh, due to the uh, hematological malignancies were at, at higher risk of uh, suffering um, from a severe infections and, and uh, afterwards uh, of death. So um, not only age, but the diagnosis, uh, being on active treatment, comorbidities as as long as we age, we are going to suffer from more diseases and we are going to have more uh, conditions that uh, can impact uh, in, a, in a final one like the COVID-19 infection or the hematological malignancy. So many factors have uh, to be taken into account in order to try to, to predict uh, the outcome. Thank you, Professor Cordova. I'd like to come back to a topic we touched on just now, which is around things like pressure on, on ICU beds. And maybe I can come to Dr. Wedding first. When, when there is this kind of extreme pressure on ICU beds, such as during this global pandemic, how are decisions made on who should get a bed? And what is the impact of hematological malignancy in this decision-making process? Yeah, normally we make decisions when it, within medicine um, asking two questions. First question is, will the benefit, is there a treatment um, which will be able to improve the cause of the disease for the patient? We call it indication or is there need for medical treatment? And the other part is, is the patient willing to have this treatment? And both have to come together um, to, to that we start treatment. And in the situation of a shortage of ICU beds or ability to, to have high flow oxygen or ventilation, we have to add a further point. We have patients who would benefit from the treatment and who would be willing to take the treatment, but we can't um, offer the treatment because it's not available due to a shortage of material, but most of the, um, in most of the cases, due to a shortage of persons who are able to apply the treatment. <laughs> and when we have to make the decision in this situation, it's important to, to inform all members of the decision team that we have such a situation. Um, that we have to prioritize between different 
kind of patients? Who will benefit most of the um, treatment and to apply the treatment to the patient who will benefit most? And to then you have to communicate with the other patient and their relatives that you can't offer the treatment due to a shortage um, and then that you offer best supportive care, including palliative care in this situation. But we have to compare not only patients um, affected by a COVID infection, but we have to compare COVID patients with trauma patients, with oncological patients, with hematological patients, with um, COPD patients. And that's a thing we are not um, used to, to, to compare between the different diseases that most likely bene clinical benefit the patients have the, from the ICU care. And then we have to come together in a team to, to discuss the, um, the likelihood of, of benefit from the treatment and then to make a decision. It's important to first to have the official statement that we are in a situation where we have to prioritize. And second, that, we, that the team is coming together and make the decision based of rules they have decided on in a, in a first stage. Mm -hmm. So that you have a transparent um, approach, even in the situation um, of shortage of ICU care, of ventilation or anything. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested whether there were local, I guess, geographic differences. You, Dr. Wedding, you touched on the, I guess, this sort of cross comparison across disorders, this broad team evaluation. Maybe Professor Braun, was, this, was that a similar situation in Belgium? Yeah, I think the situation was similar in all the European countries and also in, in the US. And um, we, we also learned from the, the acute uh, shortage of bed in the ICU, as uh, Ulrich explained, uh, it's not easy to prioritize the, the patient. That was a real ethical problem during this period. And um, we, we learned from the, the regulation of the, the ICU. It was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in March 2020 by uh, Ezekiel. And they explain that it's important for the, the care of the patient not first come, first serve, first served. Uh, that's not something they can't apply in an acute situation. And um, we have to, to be careful. And for the older patient in the nursing home, they explain that it's important to, to discuss with at least two, ideally three physicians, including geriatrician. Age is not a criteria. It's important to to have in the file of the patient advanced care plan, and usually that's missing. It's important that the, the caregivers in the nursing home are able to establish the clinical frailty score. It's mm -hmm. used in the ICU, and uh, it's also used by a geriatrician because of this clinical frailty score. It's, it's done in five minutes, and uh, it can help to decide uh, we do or we don't do uh, intensive medicine. 
it's important to take into account uh, if there are uh, other diseases like end stage uh, renal disease or end stage uh, cancer to to stop the transfer to the hospital. And what they explain in this editorial too, it's uh, something that uh, which already already mentioned too. It's important to keep a registry of this decision because it's difficult to to do this uh, selection of the patient, and it's important to learn afterwards from what we did. And it's also important to have uh, a psychological support for the mm -hmm. physician who who are involved in this uh, selection and uh, the way to prioritize. Then mm -hmm. it was an important paper in the New England Journal of Medicine um, published um, related to this uh, triage. So Wedding, you wanted to add in onto that? Yeah, yeah. at least in my country, there is no law uh, which allows us to, to decide based on triage. Um, but as physicians, uh, we recommend to do this and we we as within the medical societies we we try to provide rules how to perform it um, and not to to make decision only based on first come first serve the difficulty in the decision making process is in addition that a ICU capacity or a ventilation capacity you need for a COVID patient is a long time period. You 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 have to. Uh, most of them are ventilated for three weeks or four weeks, and uh, are you allowed to to include in your decision making process? You might need the ventilation capacity for other patients with other diseases only for five days or a week. And can you offer the same ICU capacity to four patients instead of one? We don't know whether that is, is a, we are allowed to do that and which, whether it's appropriate to include the time you need the ICU resources to include that in your decision-making process. Mm, indeed. Um, finally, maybe if I can come to Professor Cordoba, I assume the situation was similar in Spain. It'd be interesting to get any thoughts or, or insights from yourself, I guess particularly if there's anything else around the, the sort of hematological malignancy perspective or whether it was very same and very much the same around the, the same sort of challenges of prioritisation. I think in, um, in the field of hematological malignancies, when we have a, uh, we had a patient in order to be transferred to the, uh, the ICU, um, one of the questions that we are um, uh, very frequently asked is about the, the prognosis of the hematological malignancy is if, uh, uh, if the patient is with the disease under control or if it's in the relapse setting trying to uh, get the, uh, the malignancy uh, into, into control or not, if the patient is on active treatment, and what's the prognosis um, uh, with this patient uh, besides COVID-19. So if the patient, uh, the, our goal is to cure this patient or to achieve a very long-term remission, or if the outcome uh, is going to be poor, just in case, for example, of a, 
uh, relapsing or chemorefractory acute myeloid leukemia. So these questions are also taken into account in order to decide um, um, which patients are going to be transferred to the ICU. And as already mentioned, um, there are many, many uh, scores and, and calculators that can be used in order to identify which patients can benefit uh, the most. And uh, uh, for example, in, in, in Spain, many um, calculators have been developed, uh, also one in my institution, and uh, it has been used um, based on all the data uh, using um, artificial intelligence uh, with uh, machine learning um, strategies in order to at least try to help us uh, which patients benefited in the past of being admitted to, um, into the ICU and to take into account these uh, factors um, also with the prognosis of the hematological malignancy. So at the end, two main group of factors, one coming from the general population and the other coming from the uh, situation of the hematological malignancy. Excellent, thank you. I guess what all, you've all of you have described up to a point is the, the importance of the, the individual patient assessment being key in the decision-making process. Um, Professor Bronner, I understand you're part of an expert committee in Belgium that's compiling a document to help improve patient evaluation during situations such as a pandemic. Um, please, would you uh, tell us a little bit more about the work you've been doing and what you're hoping to achieve? It was a, a long story. Then um, we were approached by the Ministry of Health because everyone was shocked, uh, like in the other country, by the deficiencies and the failure in the system. Then we established, um, we have a National Committee on Bioethics. It's running uh, for now more than 20 years, composed of, composed of uh, physicians, lawyers, uh, psychologists, sociologists, uh, epidemiologists, uh, a lot of different expertise. And then we, we create a specific commission of experts for this problem in the nursing home and how to, to be more human for the, the next acute problem in the future because uh, this time it was a pandemic but it could be an earthquake it could be um, it could be um, flooding it could be nuclear attack we have to be now prepared for other acute problems and the the management of all these older patients in our society then um, after the interviews um, can take one hour, but I will summarize the, the recommendation. Then after all these interviews, we ended with a recommendation in three different directions. Then the first one was um, improvement in the infrastructure because of the shortage of material and also to have a better coordination between the nursing home, the hospital, less, uh, less general practitioner linked to the uh, to the nursing home. The second direction was an improvement in the training of the, the caregivers, the nurses, the physician in uh, to have a better emergency plan and a better training for the evaluation of the frail score to know which of the patient have to be sent to the hospital or not. And uh, also to investigate uh, the patient, and that's the, the third 
direction, it's uh, improvement in the file, the, the numerical file of the patient. And this file of the patient in the nursing home should include uh, a better evaluation of the vulnerabilities and the, frailties, the clinical frailty score of the patient, uh, a better overview of the patient wishes in, in terms of uh, end of life. And that was the situation for Belgium. I cannot say if the situation um, in all the countries, but uh, uh, the, this national committee is just a consulting committee uh, without any legal uh, authorities, and they just to to suggest the the thing to improve. And um, as we discussed already with Roll and Ulrich, maybe it would be good to to discuss on a European level and to have more practical uh, approach maybe in the future. Mm, very interesting. Will the document be made uh, more widely available? Yeah, I just asked to this uh, committee then it's now published in the website of the National Committee. And if you refer to the to this um, advice or this uh, opinion, then there is no problem to to use it uh, for other purpose. Excellent, thank you. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you to Professor Raoul Cordoba, Dr Ulrich Wedding and Professor Dominic Bron for their insights and expertise on the ethical issues associated with treating haematological malignancies in older patients. They summarise the great number of ethical challenges associated with the treatment, or at least prioritising access to care, managing the very individualized requirements of all patients and balancing things such as over and under treatment, but also the ethical challenges that have been perpetuated by the COVID pandemic. Thank you also to everyone for listening. Please do remember that you can access the other podcasts in the EHA Myth Busting series alongside the other associated resources at the EHA campus at www.ehaweb.org. Thank you for listening.